we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. And uh, we're going to dismiss our kids to Children's Church at this time. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we can get a Bible to you. Um, and open to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. book of Colossians chapter 2 verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy an empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all, us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We come to your word this morning and we just uh, pray that you would be exalted. We pray that uh, any words I speak would be sound words, words of truth from your word. I pray that there would be no confusion as to understanding who you are as you have revealed yourself in your word and how you make us complete. We pray for your help. In your precious name, amen. So how would you answer someone who would approach you and say, what does Christianity offer you? What does Christianity offer you? Maybe you would even uh, want to contemplate that question this morning for yourself. What does Christianity offer you? Perhaps you would think of the things that, since we're in church, things that might apply to us in church, like forgiveness. Um, We 
you might think freedom, the word freedom. You might think of um, peace. We might, you maybe have heard other people say uh, that it would bring about everything your hearts desire. Success. Health. Wealth. Um, all your dreams. <laughs> That's not biblical, by the way. Um, but what is it? What is it that Christianity offers? You know, it can be summed up in one, the name of one person, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is what Christianity offers. Jesus Christ. And so it is He who we want to talk about this morning and His completeness that is ours. His completeness. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul starts off this, these verses in verse 6. If you, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord. In your notes, um, I have A, B, and C. and I, There's really no A, B, and C. There's past, present, and future. And I want you to contemplate those things, not necessarily as points, but in as you think about this topic of receiving Christ. Receiving Christ. We know from the revealed Word of God that we are sinners. We are born sinners. In fact, in the book of Psalms, David says, I came forth from the womb speaking lies. We are born sinners. We are born separated from God as, be, as part of the human race. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and we choose to disobey God from the earliest time we can make decisions. Now, little infants, little babies are innocent in that they don't, haven't participated in sin much. They, they, that they, they learn, they, they do that very, very quickly. They, they think the universe revolves around them. They demand to be fed when they're hungry, right? All those things that we identify with and we should call sin, they do. And they do, they didn't have to learn how to lie as they begin to talk. They didn't have to learn that. In fact, we have to teach them as parents and grandparents how to tell the truth. How to do what's right. And so from the very beginning, there is a, a becomes obvious a need because there is a lostness. There is a lost condition in each and every person. that can only be solved in the person of Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross. Because what Jesus did, as we read in our text, 
He and only He can forgive sins and provide access for us to God. We are void of God in our sins. In fact, we are deserving and about to receive God's wrath as sinners. How many sins does it take to make us a sinner? In the book of James, we're told one. One sin makes us a sinner, makes us condemned to the wrath of God because He is just and He is holy. But He interceded on our behalf. He sought us. He paid the price of death for us. For our sin. Though He was absolutely holy so that we might have communion with Him, so that we might be able to be saved and receive Him. God, Alistair Begg said this wonderful quote. He says, God takes us to Himself and says, you are twice Mine. I made you. I sought you. I bought you. You are mine. You are mine. And for most of us here this morning, that will, we could relate this, this action of receiving Christ to the, our past. If you have not done that, this may be the present tense for you, and I would urge you to do it today, to receive Christ, His sacrifice on your behalf, He is the only way to have peace with God. He is the only way to have your sins forgiven. All the effort that you could ever do, all the good things that you could ever accomplish, could never take away the condemnation for your being a sinner. Because you're not holy. Jesus Christ was absolutely perfect and holy without sin. He was God Himself in flesh. And He alone could make the sacrifice that God demands for sin. Thus He died. He rose again from the grave. And He offers us that salvation. Many times we say, I accepted Christ. That is a little bit of a misnomer. The biblical word is you received Christ. He accepted you. He accepted you. You didn't have to clean up first. You just have to receive His salvation. But then as we, if we have received Christ, We're told, so walk in Him. So walk in Him. Live your life in Him. He has given you life. He he has raised you, though you were dead, He has given you life. So, walk in Him. Live your life in Him. And he describes it this way, rooted in Him. 
rooted in Him, built up and established in the faith as you were taught. So there's a very important place for the teaching of the Word of God. We can't, we can't just come to these things on our own. In Romans 1 it says that we, the evidence of God, the evidence of His divine nature, in fact, is in the creation. But though we might even worship God and highly exalt Him and esteem Him, we, there is salvation only through Jesus Christ. That is the, through Him is the only way we can come in fellowship and communion with God. So walk in Him. If we love Christ, it is the defining feature that we are saved, of our saving faith. Our love for Christ will be evidence of us receiving Him. But as you know, I don't stand up here and try to make out that a Christian life is an easy one. It is a hard life. It is a life filled with suffering. It is a life of battle. We went through a Sunday school class a while back on the book of Joshua. And God had promised the land of Israel, the promised land, as as the people were coming from Egypt, God had promised them this land. And for the first time, they were to possess it. And God promised that they would possess it. He demonstrated to His people that He was the one who would conquer the the peoples who existed in the land on on Israel's behalf. And we remember the stories, the the lessons of Jericho, how the walls came tumbling down. And it wasn't sound, it wasn't the marching of the people of Israel around the city. It was God who brought those walls down. And conquered that city for Israel. Over and over and over is recorded in the book of Joshua. God bringing the victory and the possession of the land to Israel. But God said something to them. He said, I will not open, kill or open up the land entirely for you. You must fight. You must take possession of the land. He said, lest... Wa- Wild animals come in and overtake the land. I believe there's a spiritual lesson in that, even for us today. That God did not make us perfect as soon as we received Christ. Why? Don't we wish that? It's so hard battling sin, isn't it? So hard battling my own flesh, my own desires. It's so humbling to find out that those desires are not godly. That they're selfish, self-centered. And the world is constantly attacking us, it feels like. The, the, The signs, the billboards, the TV ads, everything. We have this battle that's going on constantly. Why? Why didn't God just make us perfect and pure like Him? 
in our living. I believe it's because we need to learn to battle. Just as Israel needed to learn war generation by generation in the land that God told them and gave them to possess. We must learn to fight. And why would we need to learn to fight? In fact, I believe there's a, a, re, a relation to why Jesus suffered his whole life long on this earth as the holy, the God-man. Why did he have to suffer? Why did he suffer? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We're taught that Jesus suffered learning obedience to his Father so that he might prove he was perfect. So that he, he, it would qualify Him to be our Savior. The only one, the only way to God. So what about us? Can we learn through this battle, this fight for holiness, this fight of sanctification in our lives, Yes, we can. We can learn obedience. We can learn to love Him above ourselves. Above all. But how do we prevail? How do we persevere? How can we give a, be abounding in thanksgiving? I want to share this passage with you. It's from Second uh, Corinthians chapter one. We were on vacation last week, and and the Sunday school hour was spent studying this text, and it was just incredible to have that opportunity. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse three: Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So we receive comfort from God. We are comforted. We are comforted when we see others suffering because we know and have experienced God's comfort. Continuing on, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now here's really interesting because Paul is talking about 
this very time when he was writing about this letter to the Colossians. His time in Ephesus. He never made the visit to Colossae. But he had a battle in Ephesus. He had a battle in Ephesus. Listen to what he says. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now some people, we don't know exactly what it was, the deadly peril that Paul was facing in Ephesus. It could have been, some have suggested, wild animals. It could have been the um, worshippers of Artemis. Remember Demetrius, the silversmith, who roused up all the other craftsmen, the silversmith, because they were idol makers. And as people were coming to faith in Christ, they were losing business. And so he made this huge rally. And by God's grace, the disciples uh, were spared and Paul was urged not to enter into all that. We don't know exactly what this peril, this deadly peril that Paul is referring to here was. But listen to what motivated him, what brought him through this. Verse 12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. Okay? In all of this, Paul lived uprightly. He lived walking in Christ, in holiness, in righteousness that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And supremely so, praise you. So how do we live uprightly? How do we prevail? How do we persevere? By God's grace. The same as when we are saved. It is God's gift. He will sustain us. It's only by His grace. It's only by His grace. I want to share a little bit of a testimony with you. And uh, as I was growing in the Lord and learning to walk with Him and follow Him, Um, there were things in my past that I knew um, I had sinned, where I had sinned, and I had asked Christ to forgive me. I I knew His forgiveness, but there were individuals that I had wronged. There was restitution that needed to be made. And um, my testimony is, is that I replaced Christ with something. Something that any of us can do. 
And that something was time. As I thought about the things that I've done and the restitution that I needed to make, I convinced myself that uh, they probably forgot. It was a long time ago. And who, who, who wants to bring up those painful things, those painful reminders? Surely they've moved on. I have. Isn't it like, kind of like digging up bones? That old expression? Digging up bones? Well, the Lord continued to convict me and show me that what I was doing, I was replacing Christ with time. But time couldn't forgive me. Time can't forgive you. Only Christ. And as I, by God's grace, I was able to contact those individuals, confess to them, ask for their forgiveness, make restitution where I could. And it was God's grace. Then I could receive what God wanted me to receive. The freedom that past. Yes, Christ had forgiven me, but I needed to be forgiven by others as well. I'd wronged them. But it is by God's grace that we learn these things, that we grow in Him, that we live Righteously. The next section I want to look at in this passage is that we are complete in Him. Paul said in the letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As we've received Him, we are to walk in Him live in Him. We are to live in Him. But He gives us warning. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now, what Paul is not saying here is that all philosophy is wrong. He is warning of a specific philosophy, and that was in this context of the Church of Colossae. Remember, they lived in this area where he had been ministering in Ephesus, where there was idol worship. And the, the text says these words, elemental spirits of the world. What this was, was a worship of what God had created. It was a worship of the stars. In fact, Artemis, the idol that these people had been worshiping, was a goddess of nature. And uh, 
he warns them of this kind of philosophy. It was re- referred to not to re- rational inquiry, but to occult speculations and practices based on a body of tradition. So he's warning them of this kind of philosophy. A philosophy that would replace Christ by looking to the stars, looking to false gods for your future, for your prosperity. So he gives this warning of captivity, which he calls empty deceit. It is emptiness. And you see, this, was the, the, this is the tendency of the false teachers that were coming to the church. And they were saying, you know, you could really experience Christ more fully if you did this. If you did these things. And this is the first warning he points out. This occultic, astrological worship in addition to Christ. And he's saying it's emptiness. As we have been seeing in this book, the word full is repeated over and over. The completeness that we have in Christ. So he goes on to describe who Jesus is. And he says he is fully God. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now what's really interesting here is the word for deity is only mentioned once in the Scriptures. Right here. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that we referred to already, where God says the creation reveals His divine nature. That word is very closely related, but it's a word that is describing a revelation of deity. That God exists. But here, this word, and I can't say them, I'm sorry. In fact, if, when I listened to them on Logos, the, the pronunciation was so similar, I couldn't my ear couldn't determine the difference. But, so I I couldn't, if I even knew how to say them, I couldn't say them probably so that you would know there's a different word. But this word here is declaring that Christ Jesus was God. Not revealed, not God revealed. He is God. Now, people have questioned this forever. They have doubted it. They have made false doctrine trying to explain it. How could omnipotent God fill a body? How could He fill a body? Can He fill a house? Solomon said, God... Solomon said, I built a house for God, but I know he can't. He's bigger than the house. He's bigger than the universe. Nothing can contain him. Well, 
I appreciate um, Dr. Ware. He described it as God put on human flesh. He clothed, he cloaked himself with a body. He remained fully, holy God. And yet he was holy man. That's who Jesus is. And you have been filled in him. And you, your identity, who you are, as you have received Christ, you have been filled in him. You are complete in Jesus Christ. He completes you. Everything you need. Everything is met in Jesus Christ. We are complete in Christ. All that we can know or experience of God is therefore found in our relationship with Him. Isn't that amazing? The rest of verse 10 confirms that Paul still has the false teachers very much in view. For it is hard otherwise to know why he would add the specific claim that Christ is the head over every power and authority. Power and authority refer to spiritual beings as they did earlier in chapter 1. Paul continues to apply to his readers the theology of the great Christ hymn of of chapter 1, verse 15 to 20, where it was asserted that Christ is the one through whom all things were created and by whom all things consist and are sustained. Jesus Christ is supreme. He is supreme. We must acknowledge that and remember that. All we need is found in Christ. What Jesus has done. He is the head of and rule of all authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now this is interesting as he's talking about a circumcision made without hands. And immediately our minds go to the act of circumcision. What is Paul talking about here? Well, as we've talked about earlier, he is talking about God has made us holy. He has separated us from the world. That is what God has done through Jesus Christ. In Him, you are made holy. We were just discussing how in this life we struggle and we battle with sin. But who we are, who we are is we are holy. God has done this through Jesus Christ. How has He done it? He has put off the body of the flesh. 
Then he brings up this topic, having been buried with him in baptism. And again, our mind wants to go to the act of baptism, of being dunked in the water. And that's not really what this is talking about. It's talking about the same thing as he was just talking about with circumcision. In fact, it's a, it's a word picture describing what Christ has done. What Christ has done. Having been buried with Him in baptism, we have died to our old nature. To our old fleshly desires. To our old wants. To our old habits. Those are now dead. If we have received Christ, those are behind us. Those, that's the past. And we are raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God. God who raised Jesus from the dead has made you alive, has made you a saint, has made you a holy one. This is what God has done through Jesus. He goes on to describe you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You who were dead. Because that's what we were. We were condemned by God. We were lifeless. We had no relationship with God. We had no freedom to come to Him for anything. There was a separation because of our sinfulness. Because we were born as sinners, our trespasses were counted against us. We were facing God's wrath. We lived for the world, for what we could gain from it. We looked to it to fill our needs, to be our Savior. That's what he's talking about in the uncircumcision of your flesh. We, that was our inclination. That's who we aligned with. That's who we identified with. That's who we sought. But God in Christ has made us separate. He has made us holy. Having forgiven all our Isn't that good news? It's only done through the work of Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can receive forgiveness. It's not by a scale of, oh, I can outdo my bad deeds by my good deeds. No, your bad deeds are still there. They're still counted for. They still bear God's condemnation. They still bear His wrath. Only Jesus Christ can take them, and look what it says He has done for them, with them. He has canceled them. This is an accounting, like we would deal with the books in an accounting situation. He has canceled the record of the debt and its legal demands. When Jesus was dying on the cross, His last words, He said, were, it is finished. And those words were an accounting term as well. He said they mean paid in full. Paid in full. How does God 
forgive us our trespasses by canceling the record of our debt and its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Some people mistakenly interpret this passage as saying he nailed the law to the cross. But Jesus himself says, I have not come to remove the law, I have come to fulfill it. He does not cancel the law. He cancels your debt. He nailed your debt to the cross. Your sin to the cross. That's why Jesus went to the cross. To pay for my sin. Not his sin. He did nothing wrong. He was absolutely holy. But, and that is what qualified him to go to the cross. To pay for my sin. In order that I might receive forgiveness. He did this and he disarmed, publicly shamed the rulers and authorities by triumphing over them in Christ. The spiritual beings that would rise up and, and try to condemn me, he disarmed them. He publicly shamed them. Because He is supreme. He rules over them. All of you probably have felt those kinds of condemnations. Those false guilt. Though we have received forgiveness in Christ. Though we recognize that He has paid for our sin and nailed it to the cross. We can become so downtrodden. We can think, I don't qualify. My life does, is, has been one of sin. How could God use me? And we start thinking these thoughts of disqualification. These words are so amazing. God disarmed them. These spiritual beings. He disarmed them. Publicly shaming the rulers and authorities by triumphing over them in Christ. So, I hope that you will embrace your identity in Christ. His sufficiency, His supremacy, that He completes you. In Him, you are complete. I hope that you will look to Him when you face every and any need. You would look to Him to complete you. So easy in our world to think that technology will complete us, that a bigger house might complete us, that grandkids might complete us, that kids might complete us, that a husband or a wife might complete us. We can look in so many directions, can't we? And all of them 
are empty. None of them will complete. We are complete in Christ. Call the worship team up and um, then we'll close in the word of prayer.